Welcome to the Huntback Country podcast today, guys. This is episode number 341, and our guest is a return visitor, Joseph Von Benedict. Joseph and I connected at the Hunt Expo, and he was telling me kind of uh, casually about some techniques he is using for meat care and meat preparation, and I thought it would be great to share that with you guys on the podcast, and that's what we're doing today. But it's not just about that. We discuss Joseph's experience in Kodiak from this past fall. Um, We talk a bit about my upcoming mountain goat hunt and bullet selection and get off into some vintage rifles even. So if you're unfamiliar with Joseph, he is uh, an expert on firearms and in particular rifles. He is a writer and also podcast host himself. If you check out the link in the show description, you can find our previous episodes with Joseph, which I would highly encourage you to tune into if you haven't yet. And as you'll hear at the conclusion of this discussion, you can follow Joseph's podcast as well. Let's go ahead and dive into this wide-ranging conversation. Joseph, it's uh, it's good to have you back. I I was thinking going into this conversation, it was going to be your third time on the podcast, but it's actually your fourth. I don't know if you've realized that. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, it's great to be back, Mark. So, uh, just real quick for listeners, because we won't do quite uh, the introduction and background we maybe normally do with some other guests, because a lot of listeners are probably a bit familiar with you. But we do have links in the show description to check out the prior episodes with you, Joseph, uh, and we've talked about. Oh, way back in the day uh, when Steve and I were um, going on more of an advanced rifle journey, the beginnings of that. Uh, we talked with you about cartridge selection. Uh, we talked with you in another episode before our first rifle elk hunt. And then we talked with you most recently about a big horn um, sheep hunt that you had, which was an awesome story. So again, links to those in the show description. Uh, but after those several podcasts, we finally got to meet in person here recently uh, at the Hunt Expo. It was great to meet you, Joseph. Yeah, it was good to put a face with the names finally and shake your hands and get to know you and Steve a little bit better personally. You you mentioned a couple topics that we'll get into um, on meat care and some, kind of some techniques that you have and things like that. But before we get into that, I wanted to quickly hear and share for the listeners a bit about your experience in Kodiak this past fall. Um, and Steve and I have talked about ours a bunch uh, but there's a couple of things I wanted to, to hear from your experience as well. And I think you guys were up there just, I think a week or two after us, were you guys like mid November? We were there late November. In fact, late we November. flew up the day after Thanksgiving, okay. early morning flight. And we flew back on the 4th of December. Okay. Got it. So we were there. Yeah. The, the first into the second week of November. So yeah, you guys were a few weeks later and, uh, listeners who heard a bit of our story knew the kind of weather that we faced and how cold it got, how much snow there was. And I'm, from what I've heard, that continued into the time you were there. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, what I was told by the, the boat captain there who's been, um, you know, transporting hunters on Kodiak for, geez, I think it's 30 years or thereabouts. This was the coldest sustained spell that Kodiak had experienced in at least 30 and probably 50 years. So I think you were there in the beginning and we were there in toward the end of it, but it was very, very cold. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, 
there was snow when we got there, but the temperatures weren't too bad. I mean, obviously below freezing. Uh, but then by the end of the week at the last day that uh, I hunted, I think the high was 16 and it was, you know, 15 to 20 mile an hour sustained winds. I think it was, it was pretty miserable. <laughs> you guys were camping, right? No, we did. We were lodge based. Um, oh, okay. Which is part of what I kind of want to hear from your experience. Cause I know you did um, the boat hunts. Was that your first time doing a hunt uh, with those logistics? No, it was the second time okay. with, uh, we were on the Venturous uh, boat owned and operated by Alaska Premier Sport Fishing. Uh, they don't add hunting on there, but they have some of the best blacktail hunting. They do uh, resident, they'll transport resident brown bear hunters that draw tags as well. And then they have some awesome black bear hunts in the springtime. But Travis Larson and his family there run that operation and just do an outstanding job. So is that a logistically, do you fly into the town of Kodiak and get directly on a boat there or is there other travel logistics in that nope you fly to kodiak usually connecting uh through anchorage and then on out to kodiak and overnight there generally it's evening by the time you get there overnight and you can leave usually very early the next morning we had some baggage issues flying the day after thanksgiving so we were delayed a bit but it turned out okay we did really well there were seven of us and we brought 14 mature bucks off of Kodiak Island and had some great fishing as well. That's awesome. Were the, the baggage issues, any of those firearms related? Oh, most of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think out of the seven of us, one or two of us got our rifle oh. that evening. And it's interesting to note, usually an aircraft with a firearm aboard is obligated to keep that firearm with its owner. But there is apparently an exception to that for uh, flights go into very remote areas. Sometimes all they can do is take the people. And that's yeah. kind of what happened there. <laughs> Most of us didn't have uh, rifles, equipment, even a change of clothing. I've learned to always travel with a change of clothing in my carry-on just because mm -hmm. well, it's not my first rodeo going remote. But uh, yeah, it was okay. Uh, we ended up getting to know the town of Kodiak itself a lot better. Spent a lot of time in Big Ray's sporting goods store that's a cool I, I place actually, it is yeah. and there's some great restaurants there and i found a kind of what was a little bit of a holy grail rifle for me i found uh was a browning made winchester model 71 in 348 winchester in big rays for a, a pretty good price and i, <laughs> I brought that rifle home <laughs> really that's a cool story it's it's neat to have a rifle and you know it sounds like something you've been looking forward for a while but to also have that story be a part of it like not only is it this rifle i've been waiting for wanting but you know it did it in that unique way yeah and the the, the model 71 not to get off in the weeds here but it was a great uh quite powerful lever action that was very favored by the alaskans because it's fairly potent for use on the bigger bears moose and so forth the early ones just shot decently. The Browning versions that were made in the 80s shot really well. And I wanted to use this rifle, so it was perfect for me. It's a great shooter. Doesn't have so much collectability that I'm afraid to take it out and hunt with it. So, And it came from Alaska where those things really um, found their home. Did you say it's Winchester branded but Browning made? Is that what I heard? Well, the, the Model 71 is a... The latest iteration, the last 
version of the great model 1886 action designed by John Browning. They made a couple of very fine adjustments to it and chambered it into a, a high-pressure cartridge. It's the 348 Winchester, only cartridge ever made, as far as I know, in that diameter. Basically, it's a 35 caliber that shoots a 220 grain, typically. Sometimes you can find heavier or lighter loads. Uh, bullet with quite a bit of authority, a little more powerful than a 30-06 with a similar 220 grain heavy bullet which a lot of guys use for moose and, and grizzly for a lot of years. So lever action, so it's fast. Well, Browning and Winchester have been owned by the same parent company for a long, long time. And through the 80s and 90s, Browning made some reproductions, if you want to call them that, reruns maybe is a better term, of some of the classic Winchester designs, including the 1892 pistol caliber or revolver caliber carbines, and uh, the Model 71, some 1886s in 4570 and the like, and so forth. That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. I wanted to try and shoot one of my deer with it, but we couldn't find ammo for trying. So Yeah. <laughs> huh. Is that um, something you've sourced since or brass or anything like that to create your own loads? Or has that not been uh, on the agenda yet since you've been back? Yeah, both. I've actually written about that rifle uh, in my classic firearms column in Shooting Times magazine, that'll come out soon. And I wrote about the cartridge itself, the 348 Winchester cartridge, in an accompanying feature. I believe they're scheduled to both come out in the same issue, Shooting Times. And I was able to get ammunition from Hornady. They make their lever revolution load with a flexible tip. Yeah, uh, a great load. Buffalo Boar makes a excellent heavy bullet load that's appropriate for moose and grizzly and so forth i got some of that tested it cutting edge makes uh, all copper bullets for it i shot a bunch of those i got bullets from barnes they make a nice original the 220 and 250 grain original they call it it's a uh, lead core copper jacketed flat nose bullet that really works well in that cartridge i had a lot of fun with it I just need to hunt with it. Yeah, that's neat. Is there a particular hunt you have in mind or is that to be determined for that rifle? Oh, I'd love to take it back to Alaska at some point. But meanwhile, probably um, you know, I might try and take it on a black bear hunt here in Idaho or possibly if I end up hunting elk in thick timber somewhere, that'd be a great choice for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, so what's... Um... It didn't take us long to get into rifles, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. What rifle, optic, and bullet were you using uh, on that Kodiak hunt? What did you intentionally bring up there? So, true to my indecisive personality, I took two because oh, I, I couldn't decide. Yeah. As well as a shotgun. It was the first time I've actually traveled with three long guns in one rifle case. Uh, sometimes going internationally, that can be a problem because they don't want you to have more than two, but flying, you know, within the United States, it's fine. So the, I took two rifles. One was Browning's uh, latest version of the X-Bolt Macmillan Pro in a 6.8 Western. It's a scandalously accurate rifle. I was carrying 175 grain Pro Hunter. Uh, I think they call it the LR Pro ammunition it's uh, got a tipped boat tail bullet very aerodynamic and that rifle shoots that load pretty regularly into a half inch or less at 100 yards 
And then I always had a spare magazine loaded with the newer 160-grain monometal bullet that um, recently came out in the 6.8 Western cartridge, just in case we saw any bears that tried to do uncivilized things to us. Not really worried about that, but, um, you know, Boy Scouts, it's good to be prepared, right? Yeah. My other rifle was one that I had built by uh, Lex Webernick, owner of Rifles, Inc., Rifles Incorporated, in Pleasanton, Texas. And it's a Winchester Model 70 long magnum action. So it's the full-length magnum action that'll house 375 H&H, 416 Rem Mag, 300 Weatherby, 300 H&H, and so forth. This one I had rebarreled with a, a good custom barrel and chambered to 338 Ultra Mag and then put into one of Lex's own handmade stocks. He makes superb carbon fiber stocks. Extremely light, very rigid. Turned out just beautifully. I had Leupold scopes, uh, VX5 and VX6 scopes on the two of them. No, I had a VX3 on the 6.8 Western and a VX6 on the 338 Ultra. And I ended up shooting a deer with each one and made it great. I'm always looking to try and create good stories for my uh, writing work in mm-hmm. shooting times and Peterson hunting and so forth. And then, of course, for discussion on the Backcountry Hunting Podcast that I host. Very cool. What are your What's your take on the 6.8 Western? Where do you foresee that being maybe in five years because it, you know, it's, uh, it's not uncommon to see new cartridges come on board and obviously some stick, some don't, some take off wildly. Some have kind of smaller cult followings and the six, eight Western is, uh, from my, you know, I have zero experience, never shot it. Um, just from my perception, which is again, is limited, it came out at an interesting time because it kind of came out and had a lot of uh, excitement about it, but it was also, you know, in the midst of kind of COVID and shortages on ammunition and supply. And I feel like for a long time, guys were saying, well, there's a ton of six, eight Western on the shelf, but there's not many firearms yet. And it just, to me, the timing of that release, which obviously was completely unforeseen, not intentional, uh, gives it an interesting initial approach into the market. Um, and I do feel like it has some good traction, but do you feel like that's going to be kind of a mainstay for a while? I do. I've watched cartridges launch and most of them, as you mentioned, flounder and fail within a few years, but I've watched them for, geez, I hate to admit this, 35 years or more with great interest because I got into firearms really young and read everything I could about them. Most of them don't stick. The few that do really generally deserve to stick. And you're entirely right. The market positioning, totally out of the control of of Winchester and Browning launching the cartridge, created some unique challenges and potential because, yeah, there was a lot of ammo on the shelves when nobody could find ammo for their go-to rifles. And so I know a dozen people personally that bought 6.8 Western rifles when they could find one because they knew they could get ammunition for it. So that's a, you know, as an advantage and a disadvantage, I had a lot of readers and listeners asking me, where can I get rifles? And generally you can find them on gunbroker.com. You just have to pay a transfer fee, have them shipped to your local dealer and, and you're good to go. And ammo was still 
reasonably available. Uh, as far as the cartridge's inherent characteristics that you know make it uh, legitimately capable, how shall we put this? Uh, give it the performance that makes it so it deserves to live. It's inherently accurate. It's a lot like the 6.5 Creedmoor and the 6.5 PRC in that it just wants to shoot well. I've shot it in a half a dozen different rifles at least, and every one of them shot really well. Jeez, I can count eight off the top of my head. And so I think the Browning engineers that put that chamber together really got it right. I like the fact that it shoots generally 160 to 175 grain bullets with pretty high BCs. So it's got a lot more, what I like to call authority, than the 6.8 Western, yet it behaves a lot like it. Downrange is pretty mild in recoil, respectively, right? And it's got a lot of reach. But when it gets there, it hits harder than the 6.5 PRC. Now, the PRC is a fantastic cartridge, and it has the advantage of just innumerable different projectiles, long-range projectiles, match projectiles, deep-penetrating projectiles, you know, explosive varmint-type projectiles. There's a vast array that can be reloaded for the, the 6.5 PRC, and there are now a lot of factory loads on the market. The 6.8 Western has the challenge of being it's a 270 caliber cartridge right but it's designed to shoot long heavy for caliber bullets and it's got the rifling twist rate to support that of course it'll shoot all your traditional 270 projectiles the 130 grain hunting bullets 150 grain hunting bullets it'll shoot them great and you can hand load them for your rifle works fantastic however you're not going to have the extended range capability with those because they are not long and heavy enough, stretched out, designed with maximum aerodynamics. The 6.8 Western is. Browning likes to compare the 6.8 Western to the 7 Rem Mag, and on paper, it is darn close ballistically. Carries about the same bullet drop and, and wind bucking ability, and it carries just about as much energy downrange. Yet it's a short action cartridge, uses a little more propellant to achieve those velocities, uh, a little less propellant, sorry, than the 7 Rem Mag. And so it recoils a tad less and you got a lighter, shorter action. I think it's here to stay. And part of the reason, of course, is purely support. Winchester and Browning will support that cartridge, both in rifles from the gun companies and ammunition from the ammo sides of those two businesses. And that right there is 60% of the battle. Yeah, for sure. Uh Again, I'm not uh, super familiar, but just based on the bullet weights you mentioned, I'm guessing kind of the standard twist rate is going to be somewhere around one and eight. Is that right? Or yeah, I've seen them with as fast as a one and a seven and a half, and and pretty commonly around one and eight. That's a, a great versatile twist rate. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Cool. Um, so you know, Steve and I have hunted Kodiak a couple times. They've both been lodge based. We've talked a bit about that. Um, you have a similar approach from the boat, meaning you're kind of headed out to hunt for the day and then coming back. The only real difference is we're getting on a boat to be taken to a lodge. You guys are essentially staying on the boat. Um, the, the boat experience 
for guys who have never done it, even myself included. Can you talk a bit about, oh, just some of the basics on those logistics in terms of what is life like on the boat, right? So you're, you're thinking all meals, obviously showering, lodging, drying out, getting ready for the next day, meet on the boat. I know that there's a lot there, but um, basically just a quick high level description of life on the boat, not talking about the hunt, but just the logistics and kind of experience of, of being on that craft for the week that you're hunting. Sure. Life on the boat, most succinctly put, is wonderful at least on the boat I've been on. Now, I can't speak to others, but the captain of the Venturous, Travis Larson, is really a chef-level cook. And in that little bitty kitchen, he whips up unbelievable meals. So they feed you a big hot meal morning and evening. And if you're there for lunch, they'll feed you a good meal for lunch. So that's a beautiful thing. You're not worrying about bringing your own food, no freeze-dried stuff, no cooking yourself. The boat is warm. So you can come in cold, soaking wet, and within a short time, you're warm. There's always a shower ready to go. There's just generally one. So if there's six or seven or eight of you on board, you have to kind of, um, you know, get in line. But that's okay. You sleep in warm bunks, generally in the bottom front end of the boat. And you have to think um, small as far as... You can't just spread all your equipment out. <laughs> Some of us end up doing that anyway. and You just trip over each other and, and cheerfully dig through each other's stuff until you find your gear that you need for the day, right? Drying out gear, the boat we were on, and I understand, as I understand it, most of them, have a, a ventilated uh, forced air closet on the backside. So before you come into the boat's cabin, you pull off your wet boots your wet clothing, hang it in there, and when you need it the next morning, it'll be dry. Generally, there's a... So these boats are transporters only, generally. Unless you hire a guide to go along with you and help you, they transport you to the beach, and then you're on your own. And so you're responsible for all your field prep with your meat care, for all your packing, and then when you get it on the boat, for taking care of it there too. And you'll bone it off generally is what we do and then hang it in meat sacks along the rail. Keeps it nice and cool. In our case, it was frozen solid within an hour <laughs> or two every day. We had You mentioned temperatures earlier. If we had been tent camping, we'd have been in a world of hurt. Yeah. On the, on the boat, we had temperatures down around zero several times. I think our high until the very last day was around 17 degrees. And we typically had sustained winds between 30 and 50 miles an hour. We hunted in 50-mile-an-hour winds. We packed deer out through drifts that were hip-deep with 50-mile-an-hour winds. It was brutal but exhilarating, and the deer were moving, so we were getting into them. It was a ton of fun. Ice all over everything. The Zodiac, which, of course, is you know uh, an inflatable hybrid aluminum type boat with a good powerful outboard motor on it that runs you to the shore and back it had an inch of ice over the entire boat every morning so it was it was entertaining it was challenging it was exciting it was wonderful but life on the boat itself is good it you're always warm at night you sleep well you're always well fed you're generally ready to go in the morning with dry clothing and 
importantly, you can push your limits during the day harder than you can if you're camping because at the end of the day, if you're camping somewhere, whether it's on a beach or up in the high country, and you're soaking wet and way past the point of exhaustion, you are facing serious challenges through the evening to prepare food for yourself, to get warmed up, to take care of camp, especially if there's a violent wind going, which is pretty common on Kodiak. If you're camping, you got to be careful. You've got to conserve your energy. You got to stay dry, reasonably dry at least, and always be thinking ahead. On the boat, if it's a half hour till dark and you see a big buck, but you have to cross a bunch of water, get soaking wet and put out some gut-wrenching effort to get to that buck, shoot it, hour or two to break it down and pack it to the, the shore and then get to the boat, it's okay. You walk into that boat and slump into a bench, exhausted, wet, and you get warm and fed. That's a great point. And, I, you know, that definitely was relevant for our hunt as well. And it is a, a freeing mindset when you don't have to be uh, as critical of some decisions. Like, obviously, we all enjoy to be warm and rested and dry, but there was for sure times, even on that particular hunt for us, where we knew it's like, we can get wet right now. We can go for this. We can stay out in this. Uh, it's okay if we, you know, have exposure because we're not dealing with the consequences of that long term. So I'm glad you mentioned that because it's definitely relevant. Yeah. I like to eat good when I'm putting out a lot of effort. And we had fresh crab that we caught, you know, that we put out crab pots. We had scallops. We had halibut. We had, of course, blacktail. I think we had caribou and moose just fantastic food and that adds to an experience it's nice to sit around a couple of tables with half a dozen of your buddies and swap stories at night over a really good meal you mentioned those cold temperatures uh letting your meat bags hang out and then it freezing quickly uh, that's something we dealt with um essentially the the place that we stayed had um an outbuilding that is you know it's locked up to keep bears and other critters away but uh, an outbuilding that we store the meat in. And as you mentioned, it was the same situation for us. The folks that we were with at Foxtail Lodge, they're a transporter. And so they're uh, legally not allowed to, you know, take care of big game uh, in this context. They can't help with fishing because they're fishing guides, but they're not hunting guides. So um, taking care of our, the deer was on us. And oh, uh, some guys would take care of their deer that day. Other guys would get it in um, storage, but then over the course of days, it's now frozen. And then now you're trying to potentially debone frozen quarters, which is clearly a challenge. You did mention boning off. Did you guys take care of everything and debone everything before it froze? Did you kind of have to take some quarters, let them kind of loosen up, thaw out a little bit to then uh, bone it? And along with that, um, as part of this boat experience, did they provide you guys with um, the packaging boxes, wrap, et cetera, to then get to the town of Kodiak and go straight to a commercial flight with meat? Or what did that look like? Yeah. To answer your last question first, they did have heavy duty totes, big zip ties, labels, magic markers, and the works available for us to um, package and take our meat straight to the airport. The uh, the hotels there in Kodiak almost all have uh, walk-in freezer that's 
designated for guests in their meat as well. So you can stay overnight, get your meat frozen really hard if it already isn't, and then you're good to go. They also had a meat packer who would cut, wrap, process your meat for you, and then ship it to you in the lower 48 if that was the route you preferred to go. And we did about half and half. I brought all my own meat home, but if you wanted to have somebody bring it for you, he was there. And that guy also takes care of all the fish you've caught um, and, and ships it to you. So backing up a little bit as far as how did we process, it was so cold we knew that there was no way we could thaw meat yeah. Once it was in the sack, hanging on the rail of that ship, it was going to be that shape in that <laughs> condition for the duration. Yeah. And so a few times we came in pretty late, an hour or two after dark, and we were pretty exhausted. But we just would all pitch in and whip through the meat uh, in a hurry, get it all boned off. Candidly, probably 80% of the deer we were boning in the field. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to. Yeah. Right. It made sense. Generally, you have light. Uh, you can just do it there and get it done. But for the three or four deer that didn't get done in the field, well, the plan was we'd all pitch in and do it. But kind of a, a pleasant turn of events. We had Gary Heward there. Uh, he's the father of Colton Heward, uh, kind of a, a young gun writer friend of mine that uh, interned under me for a while and now helps me with my podcast. But his dad, I had no idea, his dad basically grew up in a butcher shop. He could bone out a deer in 15 minutes. It was unbelievable. We'd all gather around. He would do two or three quarters in the time that it took me to do uh, half of a quarter. And just clean. And yeah. right into the sacks and off you go. So uh, we pretty quickly realized that um, there's... There's no need to sweat it. If you have some practice and some expertise or you have Gary, <laughs> it's pretty quick, right? Yeah. And I got to hand it to him. You know, he was kind of the patriarch of our group. He's in his 60s, and the rest of us were all significantly younger. Man, it did not matter how late it was or who was coming in through that door last with a deer not boned off. He was the first one to have his jacket on and his sharp knife in hand going to work on that deer. That's the kind of hunting partner you spend a lifetime looking for. Yeah, absolutely. What's been your experience uh, eating and enjoying the Sitka blacktail? I know that uh, Steve and I have given each other trouble back and forth because he hasn't uh, had nearly as good of an experience as I say I have <laughs> from both of our trips, honestly, and uh, all the deer we've brought home. I've My experience has been un- like unbelievable i love the meat my family loves the meat it's been fantastic and steve's like yeah like i've had some good meals out of it and i've had some not pleasant experiences with it and i'm just like you're crazy you know which of, of course there's always some variance and uh you know the animal you're shot and where they rutted etc cetera, etc cetera. but um what's been your experience i'm with you i think it's some of the best venison you'll ever taste my first trip up there, I made the mistake of donating most of my blacktails. I think I brought home two hindquarters and four backstraps from the two deer I shot up there on a previous trip. And our first meal with him, everybody in my family was roundly abusing me for not bringing all of the <laughs> meat home. I, and I know a lot of Alaskans make a yearly pilgrimage to Kodiak, even if they live way up in the interior to shoot 
Sitka blacktail deer, and they'll try and shoot three each, which is as many as you can shoot, mm-hmm. because the meat is so good. A lot of them value it more than even moose, which is just prime, prime eating. Sitka blacktail venison, to me, is not as gamey, You, if you take care of it, not at all gamey, and it doesn't have any of that, like, sagebrush taste that we get familiar with in some mule deer. Yeah. And none of the... I sometimes compare whitetails a little like lamb. If you love lamb, you love it. But if you don't, it's there's a, a flavor, right? Sika blacktail doesn't have that kind of slight tinge of a pungent flavor to it at all. It's in my experience, it's outstanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. And you know, my my background being from the Midwest is with whitetail, and that's uh, my wife never ate wild game until she was with me <laughs> as a hunter. So her, all of her first experiences were with whitetail and, um, some better than others, but she's definitely on the more particular side with whitetail venison. Um, but she would hundred percent much, uh, much prefer Sitka blacktail and has enjoyed every time that we've had it. So yeah, same experience here. Sure. So we did, um, want to talk about meat care, but you and I were talking, I think first in an email. And then also when we chatted at Hunt Expo, you kind of mentioned some, some care and some process that you put into meat, uh, after the hunt. And I think part of that stemmed from, um, I believe you heard Steve and I kind of talking about, um, you know, shooting older, bigger bull elk versus, uh, tasty spikes as we now call them. and uh some of the preference (laughs) there and then you you kind of mentioned like hey you guys need to try this out on the bigger older age class animals that maybe uh aren't as good or a bit more particular here's some things you can do uh and so that's part of the reason i want to hop on is to kind of hear some of this uh this tips and tactics and advice for me personally and obviously to share with the listeners sure so do you mind if i kind of Start back up a little bit and Absolutely. start at the beginning. Yep. Okay. So historically in America, we were a nation of venison eaters, right? And then we became a nation of beef eaters. And beef is much easier to prepare without ruining it than venison is. And as I grew up and through the past several decades, I've known so many fellow hunters that ate their deer and even elk which is a little little more forgiving and a little larger grained and milder flavored, even their elk with a sense of duty, right? I shot it, we need to eat it. Not, I shot it, now look at this incredible bounty I'm bringing home, right? It wasn't as much of a celebration in their approach to eating this meat as it was a, an obligation. And I experienced kind of a broad spectrum of that as a kid. I had a few pieces of good venison and a whole bunch that tasted like an old rank piece of mutton that had been dried out. And, well, (laughs) eventually, I just kind of came to accept that. I was one of those guys. I ate it all, but many times it was out of a sense of duty. Now, at the time uh, I learned this technique, I was geez, mid to late 20s. I was engaged to my wife, so I was 27. Yeah. Anyway, I had a client coming in. At the time, I was guiding a lot of bow hunters in southern Utah for elk, and I had a client coming in in a couple days, but Jenna, my fiance, was visiting, 
and I had a deer tag and a little bit of time. And so we got up early in the morning and went out to a little meadow where I'd been seeing some bucks. And long story short, I got a shot at one. It, I hit it solidly. It ran off. We were only, well, minutes from the truck. So we decided to head back, grab some breakfast, give it 30 minutes to expire, and then come back and track it. Well, got home and my hunter's there early morning, a day early, and kind of put me in a quandary here, right? I had a deer to go recover, but I also wanted to treat this guy right, made it a good first impression. So I explained the situation. Turns out he was just a wonderful, cheerful uh, Midwesterner with a wonderful attitude. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm not here to be in your way. I just wanted to come say hi. I wanted to get here a little bit early to acclimate because I'm a flatlander. And I told him that I'd shot a deer and needed to take care of it. He said, can I come? So we went, we tracked the deer. It had died in a creek, like totally submerged, one antler up. Got it out and took it home. And I said, you know, elk season's open. We could head into the mountains this afternoon. I'm all for that, but I got to take care of this deer first. And he said, aren't you going to age it? And I said, well, it's pretty hot. You know, it's end of August, early September. I was going to just cut it up and put it in a freezer to keep the meat good. He said, you know, I've done hundreds of whitetails. Put it on ice. I know a lot of people say you got to keep meat dry. It's not true. Let me teach you this. I'll help you quarter it up, do whatever we need to do, and then let's go hunting. I said, okay, let's try it. So we took a big cooler, put about four inches of ice in the bottom, and then layered those bare quarters in there. Legs cut off at the at the joint, right? Skinned and layered the quarters, the back straps, the neck meat, everything in there. And we went elk hunting. Well, I came back a week later. I'd had um, one of my folks checking the ice and replenishing it as needed and cut and wrapped that deer. And it turned out to be the best eating deer I had ever had. And so that was my introduction to this method that I call ice aging. And as my older client explained to me, he said, you know, you're going to trim the rind off of a dried hindquarter or whatever that you age dry hanging in a woodshed or a garage or a cooler somewhere, right? Well, the water might discolor your, uh, the, the ice and the water in there might discolor your meat a little bit on the surface. You can eat that. It's not like a rind or if it bothers you, trim it an eighth inch off and you're good to go. Nice, clean, fresh meat, not discolored, and you're not losing any more than with a rind. And he said, plus that ice keeps the meat right at the point of almost frozen. At the same time, the blood's able to drain out of the meat. It collects in the bottom of the cooler. I leave it on a slight incline with the plug out of the end so all that bloody water can drain off. If it's late August, you're probably going to have to replenish the ice now and then. If it's late October or early November, you probably just layer the meat in the ice and leave it. And you'll never have to touch up the ice because, well, it's not warm enough to heat that cooler enough to melt any of it. So whatever the process is inside there where you're aging that meat directly on ice with a little bit of ice water filtering down through it, it ages it better than anything else I've tried. So fast forward a little bit. I did that for several years. It was great. 
ended up taking a job for two years in L.A. and then four years in Illinois, uh, heading up Shooting Times magazine. At the time, I was shooting a fair number of white-tailed deer out there, and I thought I didn't have time to process it myself. So I found a local butcher, took him the deer, explained that I was very serious about getting my own deer back and, and asked him to age it whatever method he used as well as possible. And it turned out gamey and often tough. And I knew whitetail didn't have to be that way. So I started making the time to age it and process it myself again. Much, much better meat. I don't know if there's a possibility I may have been getting somebody else's deer which I know happens a lot. They'll just do a deer and then they, you know, they don't really, I shouldn't say this as a whole, but many processors don't take a lot of care in making sure that a hunter gets his or her own exact meat. Good example, a friend of mine in Alaska shot a bear a couple years ago with a bow. Just like me, he made it very clear to the processor he wanted his bear back because he'd taken great care to get it cooled quickly keep it cool while he's transporting it out of the field. And, well, he was eating on a steak a couple of um, a couple of weeks after getting his meat back, and he bit on something hard. Initially, he thought it might be a bone fragment. He pulled it out. It's a chunk of a lead bullet. Mm-hmm. And he'd shot it with a bow, right? So I'm not throwing out any accusations, but the only way to know you're getting your own meat back is to process it yourself. And so I went to doing my ice aging method on the whitetails I was shooting out there, and they were fantastic. Part of it is also, a large part of it, is in how you cook it, how you grill it. And there's a process there I want to talk about as well. But before diving into that, let me give you a couple of examples of animals that should have been as rank as possible that ended up being exactly the opposite. The first was an 11 and a half year old bull elk. Now, I had been applying for one of Utah's premium draw tags pretty much as long as I could. And in 2015, I drew a tag on a public land. DIY hunt. I shot a bull that we'd previously found. Kind of a miracle because it's very thick on the unit I'd drawn. You can't get up in glass. You have to sneak in, look at a bull that's bugling back out, keep looking until you find one you want to shoot. Anyway, we got lucky and found this bull and I took him. He scored 402 gross. Whoa. Giant of a bull. Wonderful, wonderful hunt. But old, right? You have to send a tooth in in these regions, these these hunts, to have them aged by the state. They want to keep biological records. So I ice-aged this entire bull on the bone in a big um, pelican cooler. Quarters, right? Quartered up, lots of ice, aged him for 10 days. And I shot him in, I'm trying to remember the date, September 14th. So we were approaching the peak of the rut. This is like classic... Worst case scenario, a big, old, dominant, rutting bull should be rank, right? Theoretically, he was fantastic. There was no gaminess. He wasn't tough and uh, just unbelievable meat. I'll come back to how to cook these here in a minute. 
Yeah. Can you talk about uh, your experiences with duration as well? I mean, you don't have to necessarily sure. hit this moment. You can tie it to these different stories and animals, but I just like to hear how long you're doing this process for. Yeah. So I've done it as short as five days with good results. So I think seven is better as a minimum. And I've done it as long as two full weeks. Really? I don't dare let it go longer than that unless it's so cold outside that I can stick my finger kind of prod down into the meat and feel ice crystals. Like it's not frozen, but it's almost frozen. I think the sweet spot is about 10 days to two weeks. But if you're doing this in late August, like I say, with a bow kill, you probably better limit it to to 10 days, seven to 10 days. Mm. And going back to... It's interesting for me to hear this process because I've I've done this before unintentionally. <laughs> so <laughs> I killed uh, a whitetail early archery season um, and wanted to take care of it myself. I was you know at home in Missouri at the time and I killed it and it was relatively warm and it was like okay I I have this quartered I need to get in a cooler. It was you know it was one of those deals where I shot it last light, recovered it after dark, et cetera, et cetera. Get in cooler on ice and then. Um, gosh, I, I bet that was probably, it must've been like a Sunday evening. So I had to go back to work Monday and didn't get to it Monday night. And so, um, I ended up refreshing on ice and saw that water was building up. So I did exactly what you described of like, open the drain, tilt it, let the water drain off, but the ice remain long story short, it ended up being a crazy week of work and many other things. And I didn't get around to, uh, taking care of this meat at all until the following weekend. So essentially it had been doing this ice aging process for, uh, call it five to six days. Sure. Again, this was completely unintentional. This was totally out of necessity, but aligns with your process. Um, experience the discoloration you mentioned. So essentially, um, you know, it gets, it loses that color. Some of the blood has drained. It gets that gray ashy appearance on the outside. Um, I did trim, if I recall, I trimmed some of it, you know, more for the steak and roast cuts, but then part of what was being ground, I didn't take care to trim. Um, and yeah, it, it was great. It was fantastic. Um, so it, yeah, it's really interesting for me to hear this process of like, that was again, out of necessity, but now I'm like, Oh, maybe I need to, uh, maybe give this a shot again. Cause that was, I don't know, many years ago since I've done that. Yeah. So uh, let me back up just since you mentioned it uh, and being in a hurry. It's important to note that you've got to to give your meat a chance from the moment it hits the ground, right? If you get it real dirty, especially if you get a lot of um, residue, say, from a, a rutting bull elk's neck hide where he's been, well, let's call it what it is, peeing on himself and then rubbing on trees to spread his center out. If you get that rubbed against a, a bunch of meat and then you immerse all that in ice and a little bit of water, that scent, that very pungent, strong, uh, you know, gland-driven urine can taint your meat. So from the beginning, as soon as an animal hits the ground, get it set up, get your photographs fast, do a good job because you'll never have another chance, but don't lag. Mm -hmm. Get the hide off and keep that meat absolutely as clean as possible. You get dirt on it, all dirt carries bacteria of one type or another, and it accelerates any kind of decay and I believe accentuates the gaminess because of that in it. So keep your meat clean. Lift them, those quarters straight off the animal and put them into a protective sack. 
hang them somewhere in the shade where air can circulate around them. And, uh, you know, whatever you have to do to make that happen, sunlight warms meat or keeps it warm. You want it to cool quickly and air circulating around it is very important for that. As soon as you can, get it on the ice. Clean, bacteria-free, on the ice, ASAP, and you've got uh, a correct start to this process, right? Now, uh, you mentioned water building up in the bottom of your cooler. I try and avoid that, but I've never seen a bad result of it, except maybe a little bit more of that gray discoloration. Sometimes it'll happen if you get a glob of fat or a little fragment of meat that gets in your plug, and so you got to shove your hand down through that ice and kind of use your fingernail to dig that out, or stick an arrow or something, a shaft through from the outside and unplug it. Not a big deal. So if I may, I've got one more animal I want to tell you about. Yeah, please. In fact, we talked about that. Uh, on this one on your podcast before it was my bighorn ram yeah he was 14 years old i've heard of well sheep meat quality for a lot of years and typically the consensus is that the thin horn species which are doll sheep and stone sheep and of course the fan and sheep from the far north alaska and, and northern canada i've heard that the bighorn variety, specifically Rocky Mountain bighorn, desert bighorn, and of course, California bighorn, any variation subspecies tend to be less tasty and often tougher, ranker. I don't know. um, You know, I, I don't have a very deep experience in this because I've only shot one sheep in my life, but that was a 14 year old ram who had just spent an entire winter between 11 and 13,000 feet on the south slope of this peak, where the wind blows the snow free and it gives them, you know, it enables the sheep there, the old rams that winter up there, to get to the, the uh, grasses and, and mosses and whatnot that are there. They're not growing, they're kind of cured on the stem, but they can feed through the winter up high. So, again, ancient ram, after a long winter, you would not think that this sheep's going to taste good. But well, he was my first sheep and very well might be my only sheep in my life, especially in the, the Rocky Mountain bighorn species. So I was determined that every shred of that meat was going down my throat or somebody's that I valued. I wasn't sharing this <laughs> meat with your random guest, right? <laughs> Even if it was horrible. Yeah. So I did my ice aging method and being... Uh, that it was an old sheep. I kept that one on ice for, if I remember right, 12 days. And my wife and I very carefully and lovingly processed it, cut it, wrapped it. We generally do a, a food saver. We just vacuum pack everything, right? It keeps mm-hmm. pretty well. You got to make sure you and get all of the air out or you'll get a little bit of frost buildup, freezer burn inside. But uh, vacuum packing is a pretty w- good way to keep it. A few days later, with trepidation, I went ahead and prepared a roast and invited a good friend, uh, families, uh, uh, a family that's good friends of our family up to try it with us. And I said, no promises here. This is special meat because it's from my sheep, but it could be pretty rank. I don't know. And just as a backup, I made a caribou backstrap roast so that if the, you know, the, the sheep was bad, we'd at least have something to eat. And the caribou's proven 
Like it's very, very good eating. Mm-hmm. The sheep was 30% better. Really? It was incredibly tender, not at all rank, not gamey. And I'm um I'm not blowing sunshine up your skirt when I say this. I believe that bighorn sheep was the best wild game meat I've eaten in my life off of the American continent. Not a not an auspicious start, right? From yeah. an old sheep that's just wintered. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. I know you mentioned a, a grilling technique, and this is maybe separate, but when I hear grilling, I mostly think of steaks. In particular, if this is different from the grilling technique that you were going to discuss, can you talk about how you prepare that roast? Yeah. So the grilling technique is the same for, well, to a point, for steaks and roasts. But I've got to the point where we do probably 80 to 90% of ours in roast, smaller roasts, and I can explain why. So this is the second half of this magic equation. And not to blow my own horn here, but I've had families come over with Oh, wives or or little kids, teenagers, whatever, that were known picky eaters. They would eat maybe chicken. And if a steak was just right, they'd have some steak, but they didn't like any wild meat, right? Mm. And I would just kind of uh, cheerfully rib them a little bit and say, that's fine. You don't have to eat it. However, you know, in our home, we have a rule. You have to try one little bite of everything. And then you can say, I don't care for it. You know, I'll eat the broccoli. <laughs> anyway, so I've never had a family, a wife, anything not vacuum up this meat after trying one bite of it. So let me tell you about this method. And I can't claim, um, you know, that this is all me. I actually saw uh, a large part of this process on a meat eater episode once. And the rest I learned from a late friend of mine, a gun writer named Greg Rodriguez, who's passed away, uh, doing some ribeye steaks in Texas. So the key is to allow your meat to thaw naturally. Don't stick it in the microwave if possible. Don't run it under a faucet if possible. Just let it long thaw and come all the way to room temperature. Then you slather it with high-quality olive oil, virgin cold-pressed stuff. And sprinkle it with your favorite steak rub. The stuff I use just because it's almost infallible is Montreal steak seasoning. Kind of pat or rub that in and let it sit for another 20 to 60 minutes at room temperature. So that seasoning and the olive oil is kind of saturating and and flavoring that meat. Now the olive oil is critical because it helps trap some of the moisture into the venison. And in venison, we're lumping everything from you know coos deer to Alaska moose in here. This works on all of them. Next, additionally, to trap the moisture into that meat, you sear it in a very, very hot cast iron pan that's been uh, just painted with a, a thin layer of olive oil. And get that pan hot, like 600 degrees if you can. Give it 60 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever it takes on on all sides and edges of your roast to... Create a brown crust on the exterior. This helps seal the moisture in, which is really critical. A lot of uh, hunters don't recognize the reason that venison tends to dry out so quickly, which makes it tough and accentuates any gamey flavor in it. And that's that venison doesn't have marbling. 
If you're not familiar with it, marbling is a term generally applied to beef, and the more the marbling, the more expensive the beef or the cut from that beef. It's tiny little globules, for lack of a better word, of fat embedded inside the fibers of the meat. That fat melts as it heats and cooks. This is what gives it fantastic flavor and keeps it uh, from drying out. Venison doesn't have that. If you go one minute past where you should when you're cooking it, that those fibers are starting to dry out and they take on some characteristics of jerky. They're chewy and I don't know why it does it. Maybe with all that moisture evaporating off, it makes it gamey tasting. Avoid that at all costs. So the olive oil and then searing it are the first two steps toward that. If you're doing steaks, you don't necessarily need to sear them. You get a little nicer appearance if you just drop it straight onto the grill. You get the nice dark lines across it and so forth. So I wouldn't hesitate if you're doing steaks to skip the searing step, but also try it. You may find that it adds a little something and uh, you like it better. Now, here is the single most critical point to making good venison. You cannot cook it even to medium done. The most you can cook it is medium rare. And for those of you throwing up your hand and saying, I'm not going to do that. I won't eat bloody meat. Hear me out. When you cook venison to medium, you dry the fibers out and you embed that gamey flavor that isn't there otherwise. If you cook it to well done, you don't have a prayer of having a good meal off of that meat. Rare is okay. In fact, a lot of people make, um, especially over in the UK and so forth, they'll make Geez, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it's basically a, a pate type thing by scraping raw venison until it's a, a bit of a paste with some seasonings. They put it on crackers. In most cases, you can eat venison raw, no problem. Think about uh, jerky. It's just dried out raw meat, right? So anyway, not to get sidetracked, I really like venison to have a hot pink center. I don't like bloody meat either. I will eat venison that's truly rare. And in fact, that's about as tender and mild as you can get. But you can do it to a full proper medium rare with just a pink center, but it's nice and hot. It's not turning that dried out gray color. And it'll be great. If your meat is that even cooked color all the way through, you've failed. You still got to eat it, right? Because, well, You've truly you're, failed. You're into, yeah, right? So yeah. at this point, there, there's a couple more steps that I'll take. And just for example, one of my favorite things to do is a back, I call it a backstrap roast. I'll take a piece of backstrap about a foot long and I don't cut it into uh, steaks, you know, whether it's an inch or inch and a half or whatever. I just leave it whole, do it in this process, and then depending on how thick it is, I'll give it about three minutes per side on the grill. If it's an elk, it might need four and a half to five minutes. But a deer cooks pretty quickly, a deer backstrap. They're not that thick through, right? And often there's a little bit of a taper in that backstrap. So if you got kids or in-laws or something that just won't eat meat that's red in the center, you can let that thinner end go a little longer and they'll generally eat that because it doesn't look bloody. Yeah, I call that the end. wife cut. <laughs> 
that's typically <laughs> yeah, what I do. Go. Yeah. It's like, all right, yeah. babe, you get both ends of this thing and I'll take the middle. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one more critical step and that's to let this meat rest. So you want to pull it off in pretty much that rare condition because next you're going to wrap it in tin foil, a couple of layers, you know, a couple of wraps so it's good and tight and seal it off. So you're twisting up the ends or whatever you're doing, folding it in and then let it sit for 10 minutes. Don't put it on a cold surface like a granite kitchen countertop. Put it on top of a you know, a hot pad or something so it doesn't rob the heat out of it. It continues to cook in there. And what's most important is all those uh, juices that would be vaporizing off of that meat if you just took it straight out, slapped it on a cutting board, and went to slicing. All those juices are being captured by the tinfoil, right? And kind of saturating back into this meat as the temperature equalizes. After 10 minutes, I just use the timer on my phone, pull it out, and slice it thin. I slice it like roast beef, no thicker generally than a quarter inch, and sometimes I'll cut it as you know thinner than an eighth inch. And so you've got this nice long row of, of slices, right? Scoop those up, drop them back in the tinfoil, which will have a pool of juices that's just full of flavors. Meat juices, with all the seasoning in there, wrap it back up in the tin foil and just roll it around a little bit so that all of that juice uh, permeates the meat. Open it back up again, and even if you had some that was appearing pretty pink and red, those juices tone down that color so it's not going to appear like it you know, just got shot five minutes before when you serve it. Take it at that point and just get each person to try one of those thin slices and Unless you've screwed up violently somewhere, I guarantee they're going to reach for more. I've watched little kids, like eight or ten little kids, vacuum up an entire deer backstrap, cut thin like that, before we could get it to the table to to put it in with the main course. We, I set it out as a little bit of an appetizer. Well, it's gone. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty gratifying to see that. And you can do this with a big roast, you know, you just have to cook it on a little lower temperature and slower. By the way, I sear in a pan that's around 600 degrees. I'll put it on the grill at about 400 degrees. So, uh, you know, you got to kind of plan ahead a little bit for those. Anyway, that's the method I use. And you can do it with a steak. A steak is only going to take, you know, a minute and a half to three minutes per side too, because they're thin. I like a thicker cut steak just to protect it a little. But Try it. I really think this can change the way families view venison. We eat a lot of venison. I've got antelope, mule deer, white-tailed deer, sick of black-tailed deer, moose, and caribou, uh, and elk in my freezer. And every single type is treasured by our family. We really, really enjoy eating it. There's none of that, um, you know, eating your deer out of a sense of duty for us. I do. Yeah. Incredibly similar process. So, uh, once again, can, can give this some, some good recommendation in this process for, for the steaks that are cut, um, or that I do cut myself. I only do the cast iron. So I just do the sear and like the quick cook in the cast iron anymore in steaks, but very similar process, as you said, for the larger cuts, whether that's uh, you know, a true roast from a hind or those larger sections of backstrap uh, using this technique and it works incredibly well. Um, 
do you use, uh, to kind of gauge that deadness, do you use a temperature probe and pull it off at a certain time? Or do you do that more by feel and prior experience? You know, the last couple of years I've been doing it by feel and prior exist, uh, experience. Yeah. Uh, I want to get another good meat thermometer, but I melted my buddies last time. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I, yeah. I bought a nice one and gave it to him and, and I need a new one actually at this point, but I'm not afraid to stick the tip of a thin knife down into it and kind of peek in there and look. And, yeah, you know, thankfully my family, uh, all my kids and, and everybody are very willing to eat true rare meat. So I don't get any complaints if I underdo it. I may get a complaint if I take it a little bit towards, um, medium. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I do. Um, I use it for the, especially for those larger cuts. Cause it's just, it's more difficult to kind of gauge that doneness on, on feel and things like that. I do use a, a meat thermometer and one that has like a simple, um, wireless probe. And so it literally just goes to my phone and I can check the temperature. And then also you can set a target and it then alerts you when it's uh, nearing. And then when it reaches that temperature, which is nice, I need one of those. What brand are, are you using? So there's, there's a bunch out there on Amazon and that the one I've had, I've had for years and has been reliable is actually uh, branded under Weber. So like Weber grills. Okay, um, sure. And so it's, yeah, it's the, the probe that you'd expect to see. Um, and then a cable that goes to then essentially a transmitter. That's your Bluetooth device. Um, and actually has pretty good range. I can have, you know, the grill outside and then I can come inside and still check it from my phone. Um, nice. and it again, alerts you to, uh, when it's reaching that temperature. So, um, yeah, what I typically do is for cuts that are more consistent, um, in, in thickness, you know, maybe like a back strap, uh, without the ends that are thinner, I'll typically go to about one thirty or close to it. Um, and then for cuts that are, uh, have more shape to them. So the ends are going to be more tapered and smaller. The center is going to be obviously larger. I'll use that center, um, thicker section and go to maybe 125. Cause by doing so, I know that those ends are actually going to be at a higher temperature. Um, sure. and then do that same as you of the wrap with the tin foil. And what I like about that as well is, um, I found that to be very forgiving. So as you said, you can do it in 10 minutes and have the wrap and reap the benefits of those juices kind of reconstituting. But there's been times where I've been cooking larger portions, um, and not quite for sure how long it's going to take. And I just err on the side of finishing early and I've taken that meat, um, you know, wrapped it in those couple of layers of tinfoil you mentioned, uh, put it, you know, in a towel and then just drop it in a cooler and have done that for, you know, an hour and a half even. Um, and what I found is yes, it continues to cook, but only to an extent, right? So if you've pulled it off at a decent temperature, it's not going to continue to cook so much that you're going to go from like 130 to 160 degree jerky, right? <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. And so it, it is nice, but yeah, do very similar to you in that thin slice. And what's great about that is on those larger section or those uh, larger portions of meat, that thin slice, as you mentioned, you kind of equate it to roast beef. I've done that for leftovers and even cold, it's delicious. You know, you do that thin slice and whether you make a sandwich or pair it with some other side, it's, it's a great way to do it. Yeah. My boy, William is, uh, 
trying to get and stay fit for football season coming up here. So he's eating a lot of salads at school. <laughs> yeah, there our, you go. Our school lunches aren't great, but he'll take a uh, you know a twist of tinfoil or a Ziploc bag full of several slices of venison from a Sunday dinner or something and add that to a salad cold. Yeah. Perfect. I like it, Joseph. That's good stuff. I, uh, taking up a good portion of your time. Do you have another 10 minutes? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So we'll, we'll shift gears. This conversation as uh, you know, variety and topic, and I'm glad we covered all that, but I selfishly, but I think listeners would get some, uh, enjoyment out of this. Wanted to come back to when I determined for sure that I was going on my mountain goat hunt this fall, I had reached out to you, um, in those early stages of wrapping my head around, okay, what rifle am I taking? What bullet am I choosing for this hunt? And, uh, you know, the two contenders rifle wise were a six, five Creedmoor I have, or my seven Psalm. And, um, long story short, uh, I think I'm gonna take my seven Psalm. That's what I'm leaning towards. Um, the weight difference between the two is within, oh, call it half a pound, um, with some minor changes I've made to my seven Psalm to lighten it up even a bit more. Um, it's also, um, I'm trying to chassis. So I have the advantage of a folder, which could be nice for getting into goat country. And so I'm, I'm leaning that direction. Um, and wanted to come back to, to bullet choice on that because I'm, I keep, going in circles on this and i wanted to get your take on this and you mentioned in the email you hadn't hunted mountain goat but uh i know that you have a vast uh, experience on a ton of game and then with a ton of bullets and one thing i found fascinating joseph in in my research on mountain goats in particular and then also talking to numerous guides uh and hunters who have experience with mountain goat is mountain goats, you know, they have this, um, reputation of being a tough animal, right? You want to anchor a goat. You don't want it to run. You don't want it to take, um, you know, a cliff dive after a shot. And it's like, okay, they're a tough animal, but at the same time you look at their anatomy and then guys talk about them being slab sided, meaning they're not too broad end to end on a broad side shot, for example, they do have dense bones. Um, and so they're, you know, I keep going back to bullet choice being affected by number one, the reputation, number two, thinking through shot opportunity and shot placement, meaning, am I going to try and go for a shoulder and break them down structurally? Am I going to go for, you know, behind the shoulder into the vitals? And in that case, would want some more kind of explosiveness, quote unquote, and shock, quote unquote, out of a bullet, something softer constructed. So all of that is background to say, I, I basically in my seven Psalm have three great loads with three different bullets to contend with. One being a mono metal, a hammer bullet. Um, actually, I have loads with both 143 grain and 155 grain. Uh, that's a bullet I have used. I shot my elk with it this past fall, performed well. I'm also have a really good load, um, with a 160 grain partition, which seems like it would be a fantastic choice. And then also could go up to a 175 ELDX, which is, you know, going to get me, um, 
you know, some more of that kind of fragmentation while still should be, um, you know, have some penetration, but that's where I'm at. So I know I threw a ton at you, Joseph. I'm not asking you to pick the best, but I'm essentially taking an opportunity. I have you to think out loud with me on maybe some pros and cons of those three options in particular. So a lighter, tougher mono metal, 160 grain partition, and a 175 grain ELDX, all of which shoot fantastic from this rifle. So where would you start in thinking out loud there? Well, let me uh, let me ask a couple more questions. Remind me where you're hunting, and um, the obviously mountain goat terrain is mountain goat terrain, but what do you expect would be the longest shot you'd be comfortable taking? Yeah, great clarification. So it is in Southeast Alaska. Um, and in that country, it is essentially because of the, the steepness of it, you're the high, the chances of a longer range shot are essentially non-existent. Um, so the, in particular in the country that I'll be hunting, most shots end up being up around 80 to 120 yards, pretty much all of them with uh this country have been under 300 yards and so that is something i keep coming back to as as many guys do and i feel like it can be somewhat of a trap as thinking of chasing things like bc or comparing um wind and looking at that as extended ranges i keep reminding myself that for this hunt it's i mean the the chances are really really good it's going to be under 200 yards pretty much guaranteed to be under 400 yards and at those distances it takes um away some of the uh, importance of bc and looking at wind drift which you know i i like to nerd out on that stuff but it just doesn't become as relevant another thing i would say as well i forgot to mention is the bullet choice for this hunt ideally i want to be able to then turn around and I'll have an elk tag that starts a week or two later. And I would, in a perfect world, like to use the same rifle and bullet combination for that elk hunt as well. Um, the priority by far is this mountain goat hunt. It would be nice to be able to turn around and, and use that same setup on elk just because it's right in the middle of a busy season and traveling. And uh, it would be great to use the same setup there. Yeah, I understand that. It's hard to make a fast turnaround if you're switching loads. So uh, you've touched on a couple of critically important things. One is the toughness of mountain goats. And as I understand it, they just have an incredible will to survive. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of, you could lump them in with grizzly bears and Cape Buffalo and Oryx, you know, in that kind of mechanism where when they're hit, unless they're really clobbered and they're totally unaware when they're hit their adrenal system fires and they take on a a very strong escape uh, mentality and this is where you get the legends of them jumping off cliffs to try and escape and so forth they'll drag themselves shot six or seven times to the nearest cliff and kick and roll off of it or whatever and that's what you really want to avoid obviously because it makes recovery much more challenging and of course your headgear can get broken up break those little relatively fragile horns quite easily but the other one being that although they're extremely mentally tough i don't my impression is that they're not incredibly 
physically tough when shot properly because, as you said, they're sort of slab-sided. I don't think penetration is, in general, as important as it would be, certainly for something like an elk. Mm. Even dense bones, I'm guessing that mountain goat bones are not huge in diameter. They're probably more like an antelope bone where they're extremely dense, but they're long and slender like an athlete, right? Because these things are known for the mountain climbing ability. Mm-hmm. So I think you're on the right track. Two of the, the three bullets you mentioned would be uh, my choices. I would leave the monometal bullet out. Because in order to kill something really quickly with a mono, generally you have to hit bone, whether Mm -hmm. you're hitting spine or penetrating through a shoulder bone, that'll kind of help break it down and anchor it. If you just slip it through both lungs, it's not going to have that internal, uh, you know, the, the, the same scale of damage as a lead core bullet will. So personally... I would rule out the monometal bullet. Okay. If you'd said, you know, I think we're going to be shooting across canyons, ridge to ridge, peak to peak, whatever, maybe from a valley floor up to the base of a set of cliffs 600 yards away, I'd said, well, ELDX is absolutely the way to go. That 175 grain version especially is a really good choice because it's accurate. It's got the extremely high BC for a hunting bullet. And with that much bullet weight traveling at respectable but not extreme velocities out of the seven psalm cartridge, you're unlikely to have that bullet grenade on you and fail to penetrate. Even on a quartering two shot, out past 200 yards or so, I think you could reliably count on it to break the shoulder bone, get through the vitals. You're probably going to find a gnarled mushroom back by the ribs on the offside. Inside that, you know, let's call it 40, 50 yards, 80 yards. Hmm. Really, you're probably still okay. But I have seen that bullet stop in two-point mule deer, young mule deer shot at close range. So uh, personally, I would take the partition. You've got extreme performance on impact from that lead front core that's not bonded in place. It's going to act like a, a typical cup and core deer bullet. It'll cause a a massive temporary cavity, you know the term, basically that big football-shaped pulse, that cavity that radiates all out around from the the bullet as it travels through, which compromises, well, everything. Plus, you'll have all the fragments spiraling off and creating their own wound channel, wreaking havoc, and then the, the base, that protected base of that bullet will drive deep. You could take any shot angle on a mountain goat with that bullet, except probably a Texas heart shot, and be very confident you're going to drive all the way through any vitals in line with your shot. You could also take a broadside shot, 30, 40 yards, and just pop him through both lungs, not even touch a rib, and be confident that the front of that nozzle is going to open big and cause a lot of damage and kill that goat as quickly as possible. Plus, it's a darn good elk bullet. All right. That's honestly where where my head has been recently. <laughs> I don't feel like I've made a final decision, but that's very much in line with the thoughts that I've been having. Um, yeah, so that's, that's good to have that as well. Would you give any... So if we say we were going to land there, I also have um, the 160 grain 
Nazler Acubond as well. Would there be any reason you would prefer that over the partition? And honestly, the reason that I've been leaning towards the partition is I simply have more of them. And both of the both of those both of those bullets have been extremely hard to get a hold of. And so um I like the um the idea of the partition, the construction of the partition, the performance along what you described there, and it is shooting great. So I don't have a reason to choose um, an Acubond over it, but would you give me one if both were on the table? Possibly. The Acubond, the 160 grain 7mm Acubond is a whale of a good bullet. On impact performance will be sort of similar. I think because the Acubond has a composite tip, it'll open up pretty much as fast and aggressively as a partition. It's not going to fragment off in quite the same way, but uh, it'll still fragment off quite a bit. It'll create a lot of initial impact trauma. The base may not retain as much weight, so you probably won't get that uh, kind of a smaller crunched in on itself mushroom that just drives and drives, so you won't have as much penetration with the Acubond. So the the pros and cons of each, the partition, since it has an exposed lead tip, is more susceptible to tip damage, whether it's during recoil in your magazine or in your cartridge belt, in your pocket, in the saddlebags, your horse, whatever. That tip can take little dings. Inside of 300 or even 400 yards, doesn't matter. If you were thinking, all right, my shot is more likely to be 400 yards than it is 300, I would probably say lean toward the Acubond for the, for the two characteristics that um, give it an advantage, which, of course, is the polymer tip. It's, it's tougher. <laughs> it won't take dings as easily in the magazine, whatever. What this means is it maintains its accuracy and ballistic coefficient. You're not going to get any point of impact shifts, slight as they may be, because of a, a bit of tip damage. Also, since it has a boat tail and is a little more streamlined, it's going to hold on to velocity better. It'll hit a little harder further out there. Really, um, I think the two are a toss-up. Either one would be a fantastic bullet. But since you're talking inside 300 yards, I personally think I'd still lean toward the partition. Good to know. I know that was a, a very selfish thing of me, Joseph, but <laughs> I'm glad to have you to bounce that off of. Oh, anytime. I enjoy talking about cartridges and ballistics and shooting stuff. Yeah. Well, speaking of it, uh, I do not want to take up more of your day, but since you just mentioned cartridges, ballistics, and shooting stuff, I want to make sure that listeners are aware of your podcast, which you have a ton of great episodes on those very topics and more. So uh, before I let you go, can you just go ahead and share the best place to follow what you're up to, get in contact with you or tune into your podcast, Joseph? Absolutely. And thank you for the opportunity. The podcast, of course, is the Backcountry Hunting Podcast, and you can find it on pretty much all of the major listening apps. Uh, don't do YouTube yet. Maybe I should, but I don't. You can contact me even just on Instagram. Just look up Backcountry Hunting Podcast and I'm happy to answer questions or whatnot there or email me at joseph at backcountrypodcast.com. And I try and answer all listener correspondence as possible. I enjoy swapping ideas with 
fellow hunters and shooters. Uh, Yeah, find me also on Facebook, but I'm a little less active there. So um, best place to follow along is with the podcast and, and just contact me on email or Instagram. Perfect. Thanks for the time, Joseph. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Thank you so much as tuning in. As always, we appreciate your feedback. If you want to send us an email to podcast at exomountgear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message, then you can share your feedback, question, or topic suggestion with us directly, and we would love to hear that from you. If you're enjoying the show, it would also help us tremendously if you could share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in the podcast app that you're using. And speaking of it, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app, do that to receive future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.